Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We're just 15 days into January, and the pharmaceutical industry has already struck $100 billion in deals. Some of the industry's biggest companies are spending serious money to scoop up biotech companies at the forefront of research on treatments and, in some cases, cures. GlaxoSmithKline is buying Tesoro for $75 a share in cash. Oil company? No, the U.S. cancer drug developer, Tesoro. Liz, this is some major news that Bristol-Myers Squibb is acquiring Celgene this morning. Eli Lilly is announcing a deal to acquire Loxo oncology for $8 billion in cash and $235 a share. This is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. Today on the show, why 2019 is the year Big Pharma raises its bet on biotech. Sarah Neville is the FT's global pharmaceuticals editor. And from our headquarters in London, she covers pharma, biotech, and health more broadly. So I called her up to find out what's going on in pharma. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Amy. And why so many of the names we know, like GlaxoSmithKline, Bristol-Myers Squibb, are cutting deals. Well, I think the overarching issue for pharma for quite a number of years has been how to increase productivity, how to reduce the time it takes from finding a promising molecule, a a promising potential medicine, and taking it to market. And that's an area on which there has been remarkably little improvement over the last probably 20 years. In fact, arguably, it's actually got even slightly worse by some accounting in the last two or three years. So I think that's an issue that does preoccupy the industry. Why has that been such a difficult nut to crack? I think the whole issue of finding the next blockbuster drug does have a degree of serendipity attached to it. I mean, even though companies frequently restructure their operations, hire new people, and will argue that this is going to be, you know, this individual or this way of doing business internally is going to make a massive difference. The truth, perhaps the slightly unspoken truth, is that regardless of any of that, there is still, to put it bluntly, a degree of luck in finding the right drug or the right combination of drugs that's really going to move the dial on a particular condition. And, of course, we live in an era when payers and health systems, physicians, are more and more focused on the drug that's going to make the transformative difference. Around the turn of the century, it was still possible for a pharma company to make good money from having the fifth most widely used drug in a particular category. But now the pricing environment is so much tougher that it's very hard to make money 
unless you can become the number one, the number two, or at the very lowest, the number three drug in a particular therapeutic area. I can imagine listeners might sit here and think, okay, so you're saying there's an enormous amount of cost pressure, but we keep hearing about these colossal drug increase, these price increases, particularly in the US. Can you just square that for us? Although right now it looks as if pharma companies are continuing, you know, to charge enormous sums for their drugs, this is actually becoming harder and harder for them to sustain politically and in terms of their relationship with patients. In the field of diabetes, you know, my colleague Hannah Kushler was writing a couple of days ago about how patient groups are becoming increasingly robustly intolerant of rises in the price of insulin, for example. And I think it is going to be becoming an issue, I think, very much in the 2020 presidential elections. And I'm not just talking about in terms of the risk that a pharma company is going to get clobbered by a tweet from President Trump about their price rise. But this is something that the voters are really starting to majorly push back on. And I think it's all setting up a climate that's making it increasingly incumbent upon big pharma companies to explain why they're charging what they're charging. But I think perhaps it comes back to my point that increasingly it's about a company being able to demonstrate that it is delivering a product a medicine that's going to hugely significantly, you know, either actually cure a disease, because we are starting to talk about cures in, in, uh, in the pharma industry now, or, you know, if it's not a cure, that it will really measurably improve the quality of life for a patient. Sarah, a host of biotech companies have been cropping up, and they've been the ones making some of the most groundbreaking discoveries when it comes to treatment. And, and as you say, in some cases, even cures. Can you describe that trend for us? Yes, I think increasingly we are seeing the labs of the biotech companies hugely giving big pharma a run for their money to the point where the majority of drugs being approved by the FDA are actually now coming out of biotechs. And I think that has quite a lot to do with the nimbleness of the biotechs, that they don't have the same layers of bureaucracy that a big pharma company has in terms of securing approval for taking a a, a drug into clinical trials. And, you know, if you talk to pharma companies, they will acknowledge that there are risks that the biotechs take that a big pharma company would not feel able to take. And some of those risks are really substantially paying off for biotechs. One aspect of that is the attitude that the regulator in the US is taking, the FDA, where once it used to be very much a sort of black box process in terms of the FDA reaching its decisions about whether to say yay or nay to to a new drug. Now, increasingly, they're showing a, a willingness to engage with companies at a much earlier stage. So a smaller biotech, for example, can get some comfort that the shape of a clinical trial, for example, is one that would 
be likely to meet approval from the FDA if the drug that resulted were to show good outcome. So that is in turn slightly alleviating the risk, I think, for the smaller biotechs who can feel able to spend money on these clinical trials, already having had some early stage conversations with the FDA. It's not that the FDA is becoming a softer touch in terms of drug approvals, but it is showing this this great willingness now to be transparent to the extent of engaging with companies at a, at a much earlier stage in the development of their drug. So in the final days of 2018, we hear news of the first big deal. That's GlaxoSmithKline. GlaxoSmithKline is buying U.S. cancer specialist Tesoro for $5.1 billion. Sarah, what, what was the thinking behind that deal? What GSK saw was the possibility that with their own ability to zoom in on patients whose genetic makeup would make them most likely to benefit from a drug. This is a a capability that they've bought into through a partnership with 23andMe, the genomics company. And their argument in defence of the deal, GSK's argument, was very much that we will be able to look at the assets that Tesoro brings us through that lens of working out the precise patient population who's most likely to benefit. So I guess that's a perfect example of where a big pharma company brings its assets and its scale to bear on a drug or a compound that's coming out of a biotech. The argument that GSK has made strongly is under our ownership And with our additional assets, like our 23andMe partnership, we'll be able to work out how best this drug can be applied. And of course, this particular oncology drug was not by any means the, the, the only one in the pipeline that interested GSK. But I think, you know, that that clearly is the drug that Tesoro has has brought to fruition and which, you know, GSK is certainly hoping and arguing that they can now make the most of in a way that Tesoro was not able to do on its own. Let's talk about uh, this Bristol-Myers deal. It's a huge deal. Bristol-Myers set to acquire a cell Bristol-Myers is offering $50 plus one share of Bristol-Myers for every share of Celgene. And the second deal that really caught the attention of investors and analysts was one made by Bristol-Myers Squibb for Celgene, a whopping $90 billion deal. Sarah, what does Bristol-Myers Squibb want from Celgene? This was about Bristol-Myers Squibb looking for, if you like, a sort of force multiplier for their own existing assets, particularly Opdivo, which is their principal immunotherapy asset. And they're under enormous pressure there from rivals such as Merck, AstraZeneca, other big pharma rivals who have their own IO assets. And Bristol-Myers Squibb has been coming under huge pressure 
over Opdivo because of this intense competition and they saw in the Celgene portfolio the opportunity to find that knockout combination by using some of the Celgene assets or by experimenting with them in combination with Opdivo that they could gain a, a winning advantage over their rivals. It's not just about Opdivo. BMS's pipeline is a lot deeper than that and, and so is, you know, Celgene also has clearly a number of assets that appealed to and interested Bristol Myers Squibb. And the third deal being Eli Lilly looking to buy a company called Loxo Oncology for $8 billion. If you certainly, if you look at the recent deals that we've had just in the past month, they've been heavily oncology focused. And I think part of that is the the way in which increasingly oncology drugs are resulting from, or I, I should say, increasingly oncology treatments are resulting from combinations of drugs. So that is really putting a premium for biotechs on linking up with a big pharma company. So that's made biotech's very open to doing deals with big pharma. And conversely, big pharma looking for the the molecule or the compound that in combination with one of their own drugs is going to produce the blockbuster treatment. So it's getting harder and harder for the biotechs to in a way, look to make money from just a single drug. So that's really one of the reasons that you've seen, certainly, you know, just in these last few weeks, some of these cancer-focused biotechs looking to tie up with Big Pharma. And, you know, for Big Pharma, the drug or the drugs in the pipelines of these biotechs could turn out to be the final piece of the puzzle, which in combination with one of their own drugs is going to produce these billion-dollar-plus sales. So, Sarah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why we're, you know, I'm interested in the story, I think listeners would be interested in this story right now, is that a lot of analysts, sort of pharma watchers, are expecting a big year of deal making, particularly in when it comes to biotech acquisitions for the year ahead. Why is that? Why why is now such a big moment for these kinds of, of deals? I think it's a number of reasons. One is that the labs of biotechs are now bursting with potentially promising drugs. And I think that is partly biotechs reaping the advantages of what's happened since the financial crisis ended. And since the financial crisis was a dark time for life sciences companies, but after the crisis was over, investors were very much looking for high-risk, high-return assets to invest in. And this was a perfect match with biotech companies. So that's been going on really since about 2012. And this, of course, these increasingly healthy cash balance sheets for biotech companies has enabled them in turn to invest in drug development, which is now very much coming to fruition. So in a way, Big Pharma absolutely can't afford to ignore what's coming out of the biotech labs. 
I think that's one reason. A second reason, as I've mentioned, is the increasingly sort of complementarity underpinning drug development in which Big Pharma is looking for complementary assets inside biotech pipelines, which in combination will massively increase the impact and potential of perhaps their own homegrown or previously acquired medicines. And I think thirdly is that biotech companies are trading relatively cheaply at the moment. If you look at price earnings ratios, they're actually at historic lows for the companies that are revenue generating. Some of the really early stage biotechs, of course, are not yet generating revenue. But for those that are, price earnings multiples are at historically low levels. Mm not to be the pessimist in this conversation, but is there any risk that once these biotech companies are picked up and scooped up by big pharma, is there a worry that they'll be stripped of the research investment of the funding into R&D that was able to get these amazing scientific breakthroughs in the first place? That's a, a really interesting point. I mean, the certainly... Bristol Myers was arguing when they announced the takeover of Celgene that they would become the biggest draw for oncology research talent. So they were very much touting themselves as the company that leading scientists in oncology would want to come. So that would seem to suggest that they were planning to keep the oncology R&D function well resourced. But I guess once these biotechs hit the internal cultures of the big pharma companies, sometimes those cultures may not mesh. And part of that could be in terms of the willingness to resource continued cutting edge drug development, particularly where Biotechs are accustomed, as I mentioned earlier, to perhaps taking more more risks, pursuing molecules, compounds that may not get past the slightly more bureaucratic systems inside big pharma companies for deciding when a, a, a drug should be pursued through clinical trial and, and particularly later clinical trial stages. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. That's okay. Pleasure. You can read more on the healthcare sector at FT.com. And let us know what you think of the show. And if there's anything that you think we should be chasing in future episodes, you can email me at behindthemoney at FT.com. It would also be a huge help if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps us improve the show from week to week. And it also helps other people find out about Behind the Money. And one last thing, if you're not already a subscriber of the Financial Times and would like to become one, visit ft.com forward slash offer to take a look at our latest subscription offer. Thanks to Eric Krupke for help producing this episode. We'll be back next week.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Saving money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Saving money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big- 